Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I am Tracy Hotchner, your dog's best friend and your kitty cat's best friend, bringing you authors and experts every week to enhance your appreciation of the pets who share your lives. Please give a listen to all my new Pet Talk radio shows on the Radio Pet Lady Network, co-hosted by top experts at RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content and is brought to you with the generous support of Platinum Performance Supplements, Precious Cat Litter, Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, Feel Away and Adaptil, and Waruva Pet Foods. Waruva is a privately owned company named after the owner's cats, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. They are dedicated to the highest quality ingredients in their cans and pouches. People could even eat it because it's all made in a human food facility, so everything in there is good enough for us to eat. All the flavors of Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend brands, are great for finicky cats, especially those you're trying to transition away from dry kibble. And I have such a wonderful mixture of people that are going to be joining me today. Kim Storla, who's the executive director of Animal Place, the biggest farm animal rescue around, is going to tell us what that's all about and where it is. California, a little far from us, but we could still adopt long distance. Wendy Koch will be here talking about pain perception. She's part of the Society for Veterinary Medical Ethics. How much pain do animals feel? Are we aware of it? And we probably are under, under medicating and under giving relief. And Dr. Marty from my old days on Sirius XM on the Martha Stewart channel. Dr. Marty will be there to talk about the change in attitudes towards holistic, integrative veterinary medicine in the, the 25 years that he's been practicing it. And I look forward to saying hi to Kim right off the top of the show. How are you doing, Kim? I'm fine. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, thank you for letting me know about you. In fact, you were so wonderful. You wrote and said, you know, we really love what you're doing and we love your shows and dogs and cats are great. But hey, what about the horses, the pigs, the chickens, the goats? It'd be great to have a show called The Farm Animal Show. And believe me, if there were three of me, I would do it in a heartbeat. So instead, (laughs) we need to tell about the amazing 600 acre sanctuary you have in California, which was started in 1989. And tell a little bit about what the attitudes were about your concept of rescuing farm animals then. I think now people might have come around to the idea that, oh, the, the poor piggies or the poor chickens or the poor cows, wouldn't it be great to save them from their life of food production misery? But what did people think in 1989? Well, that's a good question. You know, 25 years ago, I was um, running an, an SPCA in the Bay Area. Um, and people didn't really know much about how animals raised for food production were treated, how they were housed, how they were slaughtered, and certainly really did not think that they had much much personality or really much of an emotional life. And it's interesting that you're having a veterinarian veterinarian, um, follow me that's going to be talking about pain perceptions, which, you know, back in the old days, um, it was questionable. I remember in our spay clinic that um, vet didn't think we needed to send home the female dogs with any kind of analgesic. And certainly that carried over even more strongly toward farmed animals. About, oh gosh, now almost 15 years ago, we produced a film called The Emotional World of Farmed Animals that best-selling author Jeffrey Mason um, oh, no narrated for us. I'll yeah, be darned. And, and he's, he, a, he's a wonderful author. He's done some great work. He is wonderful. And he had just come out. He was working on his book, and so we did a film um, on a similar topic. And, 
and had it aired nationally on PBS. But I remember back then the scientists wouldn't even talk to us. That's right. About That's the, right. The concept I bet. Of pigs having personalities and emotions and chickens, you know, you can't be serious. So yes, there's been an enormous amount of, of progress in how we view animals that are typically raised for food. So if you have dedicated a huge part of your life to to having this sanctuary and to raising awareness, you do rescue, you do sanctuary, you educate, and you promote adoption of these animals. Do you see, I, I'm just wondering about people like you who have a vision which society catches up with. And until it catches up, you're in kind of yourself, leave aside the animals, kind of a lot of emotional pain because you see all this suffering that everyone is ignorant about. They either don't see it, don't know about it, don't care about it, or when they see it, they don't see what they're seeing. Do you feel that the long view is is really important to, to staying the course with any maybe new social idea about animals? Absolutely. Uh, undeniably, it's, it's absolutely crucial. You, you can't lose sight as to why you're doing this work. And it is a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. And I'm sure you've seen that too of people who enter working to help animals enter with this deep compassion in their heart, but they see so much suffering that sadly that motivation, which was compassion, uh, the motivation starts ending up to be just, you know, hatred for the perpetuator of those cruelties. Yes, cruelty that's a really be. well put. And it's not, that's not a great motivator. It doesn't really benefit anybody. So um, that's the course, really a great point, Kim. I just have to interrupt you and say that's a point that in all the years of doing this show, my other shows, no one has really pointed that out so well. People come in wanting to do good things for animals and mm-hmm. feeling sorry for them and empathetic. And then when they see the suffering imposed on them by the thoughtless owner, breeder, handler, you know, mm-hmm. farmer, they do get filled with hatred and rage and anger. And you're so right. You don't get much accomplished if that's the place you're coming from. And yet to stay in the compassionate place, you have to be so patient with your fellow man more than anything, right? And patient with yourself, you know, yes. and, and patient yes. with, with how fast you can or can't move. And generally, most of us are quite impatient. I know I am. <laughs> so I'm the it's worst. a daily struggle. Yes. Daily struggle for me. But I think I know what we do here is every single time we do a rescue, whether it's rescuing four thousand hens from a starvation case uh last year or if it's raising rescuing one little calf like we did last week, you celebrate. You celebrate the lives of those you can save and take time to celebrate those lives. Nice. you need it. You need it to feed your own soul to, you know, to keep plugging away. And so those 4,000 chickens, were they like in a factory farming situation and had had been abandoned or were just maltreated? They were. They were were in central California, in Turlock, California. And uh, there was, it was a small operation, battery cage operation. Uh, It was 50,000 hens they had and the the person ran out of money and he basically left them there to starve to death and once we got wind of it it um it was like two and a half weeks in and uh we we drove down there camped out as while i was negotiating with the state veterinarian and the animal control director to release those that were still breathing in our care so that we could try to save as many as we could Oh, Kim, I just got a bit of a chill doing the math. You're saying out of 50,000, only 4,000 yeah. were, were close enough to life 4, to 000, even be saved. 4,460. Um, so we're counting every little chicken there. 
Yeah. Wow, that yeah. must have been quite a, a devastating situation to to confront. I mean, those of us that are more elevated about why to buy cage-free eggs, and I'm sure everyone listening to this program knows why. It might cost a dime more. Some places like Costco and even my supermarkets now make it pretty much the same price as eggs that come from hens with that are stuck in these little cages with their with their feet stuck on the wire forever and they can't move, they can't spread their wings. But we, we worry about the battery cages and then we stop. We, we don't really have a chance to think about what if one of these operations goes belly up. I mean, puppy mills do and these and animals yes, and, are just left. And, and, and as do free, free range operations. I know the first rescue we did when we started our rescue ranch program of, of negotiating with farmers to release of primarily spent hens and most of the farms. Spent hens from meaning they no longer make eggs? They they decreased their egg production at about a year and a half to two years so that it's not in the farmer's financial interest to keep them alive, and so then they're gassed or go to slaughter. But I have to tell you, some of the free-range operations um, are just, you know, a scant better if that. Right. And they're still bred the same way. They still begin their lives in incubators, and they end their lives the same in gas chambers or slaughter lines. So, um, you know, best thing I, I ask people is, is start moving towards just a, a vegan diet. Well, I mean, that's another issue. You have this program called Food for Thought, which I think is really interesting politically in terms of political correctness, but but genuine political correctness, which is that when shelters and humane societies have any sort of an event, a fundraising event or a social event, that they try to adopt an animal-friendly menu policy. And I think that's a really great thing to think about because maybe you're not going to change everybody to a vegetarian or a vegan but in those environments, they're going to be introduced to a vegetarian slash vegan menu and realize it's not the end of the world. If you can't do it every day, you could do it half the time. You could do it three exactly. days a week. I mean, it's, 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 it's role modeling. And it's, there's a powerful communication when you are the humane society for your community. You're the animal advocate organization for your community. People look toward you for guidance on what's the proper care of your dog or cat or to take a position on an animal cruelty case. And if you're saving dogs and cats and you're having a fundraiser for that event and you're frying cows on the grill, what is that communicating? Um, sometimes it's a blatant communication, and to others it's, it's more subtle. Yep. Um, but, but, I mean, it, I think it, it's important that, you, that by having this Food for Thought program, the word thought is what's interesting, is you stop and think about it. Well, let me think about that. Does it matter? And maybe it doesn't matter mm -hmm. deeply to me personally, but does it matter in the big picture in terms of society and what we exist for? Then the answer has to be yes. So you communicate mm -hmm. simply by making that choice. And then people show up and go, oh, is there only tofu loaf or whatever it may be? And then they think, well, you know, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe I could try tofu lo lo loaf and come to like it. And maybe that is a lighter tread on the planet as well oh, as the humane issue. So. You know, I mean, I know that obviously for you, it's the humane issue, but my thought is, and when I asked you about the patients, you're not going to get everything you want the way you want it, right? I mean, you're not going to get people to all come around to to understand the whole, the whole 360 degree view of it. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's mm -hmm. great that you're trying to influence humane societies and shelters and rescues, which are in the front line in, you know, the way they people view animals. They absolutely are. Absolutely, and they're extremely influential within their own community. And and we're not saying you yourself have to be a vegetarian or a vegan, but as an organization, that's something yes. that you only you personally can address. But as an organization, 
um, what's the best role model you want to put out there? And, yes. and I think it's really compassion for all life. It's, it's hard to disagree with that. That's um, right. That's right. And what about, what about people who come to volunteer at the animal place? Um, do they, mm-hmm. Are they already vegetarians or vegans? Do they become it when they become part of your community? Oh, my guess, and we're, we're all over the map. I mean, we've got some carnivores, we've got some vegans, we've got some uh, vegetarians. Oh, interesting. And so, absolutely. And those that, that um, come to us as omnivores, that they already eat animals, it's a powerful, obviously, life-changing experience yes. when they're working out here. Because they're getting to know the cows. They're giving yes. them the bottle. They're rubbing the bellies of the pigs as they yes. flop down and grunt with the light. They're... They're helping us take care of the, the chickens that we just rescued that have been horribly de-beaked. Um, and are they were de-beaked the as well? Oh, yeah, yeah, all, yeah. All, all your chickens essentially raised for egg production are, oh, all have God. their beaks seared off, as do the turkeys. And the turkeys also the, the front toes. So wow. they, they see all this firsthand, and they get a sense that of, of these animals as individuals, as beings. They see them. the animals respond to them. Yes. And it's very difficult not to change your eating habits after you get to know, um, you know, the animals that you're... And I guess that's for. really a big part of your educational push is to get kids there, to get whatever groups of people you can to see these animals as individual creatures on the planet and just have a different appreciation of it. I mean, I guess in some sort of ancient tribal culture where people were mostly or carnivores because, you know, they I'm talking about ancient, ancient human times, one has that sense of those movies or books or or histories that you read where they would give a blessing to the animal and thank the animal for its life, for sustaining them. I mean, there, there was at least some connection, some reverence for that life you were taking. And we exactly. just don't even Back have that. Then, they, they probably did have to eat those animals. And now, of course, we know we don't have to. That's right. We have other options. In a grocery store. Oh, yep. there's just a, a mountain of, of wonderful, healthy food yes. that we can eat that that haven't, you know, destroyed our environment and all the, the growing of them. And um, so I think the animals do speak for themselves when we give farm tours. We've also got a great residential internship program, Ooh. pretty much international. We have folks coming as far away as Israel and Poland and Canada. And oh, cool. So and I'm going to put um, a link to that on the podcast of this show great. for the residential intern program, because, boy, that is a great thing. We've run out of time, but I just have to say for anyone of any age who's between careers or maybe ending in retirement or between high school and college or between oh, college I guarantee and the they'll, world, they'll, they'll these are just have a great, time. great ways to, to participate in obviously what is a fantastic environment for learning and loving and caring and the animal place sounds so wonderful. If I weren't on the absolute other end of the of the of the universe in America, I would so love to come. But if I find myself in California or anyone else does, it's called the Animal Place, and I hope you'll learn more about it online and and go there and pay a visit or become a residential intern. It sounds so cool, Kim Sterla. Thanks for a lifetime of dedication to animals of Thank all kinds and and for helping us all be better people. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. We're going to go to a quick break. When we get back, I'll be back with Dr. Wendy Cope and talk about pain. This show has been supported by Platinum Performance since its first broadcast. Platinum Performance makes comprehensive nutritional supplements which contain nutrients designed to improve overall health at a cellular level, especially joint health and the arthritis that comes with aging. Platinum Performance makes supplements for dogs, cats, horses, and people, too. We are also supported by the pheromone products Feel Away for Cats and Adaptal for Dogs. 
Pheromones are chemical communicators that are a natural signal of comfort in your pet's brain. Feelaway and Adaptil plug-in diffusers are stress relievers that can help with anxiety or behavior issues and also help adopted pets make the adjustment to their new homes. Veterinarians carry Feelaway, which can reduce problems in a multi-cat household, and they have Adaptil collars, which can help dogs with anxiety from separation, thunderstorms, or travel. I am back with Dr. Wendy Koch who is a veterinarian who's worked for the federal government regulating animal welfare. But I have met her, not in person, although I'm sure I would love to, because she writes frequently on a a message board, if you will, for the Society for Veterinary Medical Ethics about issues that are always interesting and sometimes surprising. Dr. Wendy, welcome to Dog Talk. It's great to have you here, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. It's great to be here. I've never seen anybody who spends so much time thoughtfully and intelligently and at great length discussing many of the issues that you jump in and discuss on that listserv. And I always learn from it, and it may be something you've learned in your professional life, but to see things from all sides, whatever the me- the medical ethical issues are, I think is is tremendously important for all of us to not get a fixed idea that there's bad guys and good guys and stupid people and smart people. I think we're all evolving and learning where our relationships with animals are concerned. And one of the topics that was recently on the listserv, and and I loved, and there were many, like 25 or 30 various voices from the the veterinary world uh, chiming in, you wrote about animals, our perception of the pain that animals may or may not be in. And I think it's really important for us to understand that live with our companion animals, we have a presumption about pain that is quite misguided informationally. And I think that we either take action or don't take action based on that. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about what you've come to understand as what is pain, whether it's in your pet horse or my pet dog or somebody else's pet cat. What do you think, first of all, is the misconception that people have? I think the problem with recognizing pain in animals is that people tend to anthropomorphize and when we're in pain, you know, we verbally complain about it. Um, and, you know, if a child is in pain, a child will cry. Right. So we tend to look for that sort of thing in animals, and animals um, tend to be more stoic and less verbal. Right. So if you're, you know, expecting that if your dog is in pain, it's going to whimper, and it's not whimpering, therefore it must not be in pain, then you're probably going to miss a lot of pain in the dog. Yes. In fact, one of the things that you wrote on the listserv was, if you expect your dog to whimper when it hurts, you're going to miss a lot of problems because the primary sign of pain in most animals, in my opinion, is not moaning. It's a hesitance to engage in normal activities, which is much more difficult for us to notice. The absence of something is, of course, much harder to pay attention to than the presence of something. So when we talk, both as pet owners and as veterinarians, about really keeping close eye on our animals, especially as they age, and of course pain slash arthritis just comes with age. It's a natural part of these animals as they age. It's to see what is their normal activity, because if they are not engaging in it, that in itself is a sign of something. You don't practice small or large animal medicine, right? You're, that's, or did you ever? Um, not really. I was in the military for a while and, um, 
did some clinical work then, but for the most part, my career has been in animal welfare enforcement. Oh, interesting. So when you say you were in the military, it, it's always fascinating to me, and, and I think to the listeners, what does a veterinarian, what are the various things that a veterinarian does in the military, and then what did you do? Um, the military vet is, in essence, a public health vet, and a large part of the job is um, things like food inspection to make sure that the food that is being provided to um, members of the military is not going to make them sick. Um, and then they also will take care of any military animals, provide veterinary care for military animals. Ah. And um, on a as as time is available, you know, they will provide care for the pets of military members. Oh, I'll be darned. Like on a military base, if there's families living there? Right, or if there are military retirees in the area. You know, again, oh, really? if time is available sort of thing. Interesting. So that's a, a whole nother, so that you did give actually hands-on care. Do you think that, that people often under-medicate and, and don't give physical relief just because they don't understand the animal is really hurting. And if they're lying there, if they're a kitty that, that doesn't get up on the couch and just stays kind of curled in a ball in the sunshine, or a dog that isn't, isn't getting up, or when he gets up is limping a little, but then the limping goes away, do you think that people don't recognize that the animal needs uh, medical support for that pain? Um, I, I think people, you know, the obvious signs like limping, uh, people will notice, and um, I don't necessarily think everything needs to be medicated. You know, that's personal opinion. A lot of people think that if an animal is in any kind of pain, um, it should get relief. And I actually anthropomorphize on that subject. You know, if if I twist my ankle a little bit and it's a little sore, I'm going to limp, but I'm not necessarily going to go to the doctor or take an aspirin or whatever. It depends on how much I'm hurting. Um, and with a dog, you know, you can usually, if it's pain that's showing up in a limp, you can usually get a pretty good idea of how much it's hurting. And um, By their willingness by their willingness to use it or not use it, I guess. Right. What I was going to say is if, if they're acting perfectly normal but they've got a little bit of a limp they're probably fine if right. they're reluctant to move then definitely that's pain that that needs to look and see what's going on and provide some relief for the animal well you have an experience with with your horse which is the third pet horse that you have which i don't know because i've been googling you but because you actually told me and i doubt that if i googled you i would find that out anyway um and and you talk about something that i've never heard of and i wonder if one of my dogs might actually have it your current mare has carpal tunnel syndrome and you use her as an example of how hard it is to tell if an animal's in pain. So first of all, how do you, how do you diagnose, how does one diagnose carpal tunnel syndrome versus joint changes slash arthritis? Um, well, for, first of all, carpal, the carpal tunnel, as anybody who's had it knows, is in the, in the wrist. Right. And um, what a lot of people don't realize is that an animal's, what we call an animal's knee is the equivalent of our wrist. 
Oh, the knee is? Yeah. I thought the elbow was the... Oh, no, the elbows would be way up high, right. Yeah, the, the elbow is the same, but the knee right. is the wrist. Right, and, um, and what we did was um, we did an ultrasound on her knee or wrist, as the case may be, and determined that that was what the problem was. But how do you say to carpal tunnel versus arthritis? What what is it you're diagnosing? Is it a, a neural a nerve issue as opposed to a joint bone issue? Um, yes. The there's a like a tunnel in the bone that nerves and tendons and blood vessels and things go through. Okay. And um, when there's pressure on the nerve going through that tunnel then that's what causes problems. And you could tell that on an ultrasound? Yes. She basically, um, the tendon was um, larger than normal going through the tunnel, and so that was what was causing the pressure that was causing the pain. And so... And it still is, for that matter. It is. So she was not lame, and there was no other physical symptom other than you noticed her only wanting to go on one lead to only canter in basically one direction, if you will. The other direction caused her a problem. Right. It, it was a very subtle um, lameness because there was no noticeable limp. She just didn't want to use that leg in a certain way. So then you know she's in pain, and we might know that if we're really attentive to our dogs and cats, what do you do, since you're not one who thinks, well, just pop an aspirin, see me in the morning, do you medicate that pain or do you do anti-inflammatories? What do you do as an owner to alleviate what you now know is pain, even if it's not off the chart? In this particular case, I'm not doing anything. Um, I Well, I shouldn't say that. I, I do not canter her anymore because um, that is when she seems to right. indicate that you know it's problematic for her. Yes. Um, but at a walk or a trot you know she's perfectly happy to move right along and so uh, I'm again going on that anthropomorphization sort of thing that you know if I were moving that well then whatever pain I was experiencing would not be a big deal. Well, that's that's a really great um, example, Dr. Koch, because I had a, a Rottweiler named Yogi Bear who was thrown away on the side of the road in Southampton one very hot August day in a cardboard box, a beautiful little puppy. He couldn't have been more than eight or ten weeks. And I discovered later when he started to have screaming what a stupid local vet told me were growing pains, screaming episodes when he tried to get up, he had no hip sockets. He was just put together wrong. You know, like they somehow knew that even as a young puppy that there was a serious defect. And I was told to keep him only on leash walks till he, his bones closed and he was finished growing seven or eight months in the future and completely limit exercise to only pee and poo on a leash. And everything in my fiber told me, no, 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 I want to strengthen all the rest of his body. So I let him always be loose and free and go on very long walks in the in the white pine woods of East Hampton. However, I did see that if he went in a circle, a tight circle, playing with another dog or even playing himself, that then his hind end would slip out from under him. And I figured that would cause pain or damage. So I only let him go in a straight line. And that sort of could be like a horse situation, right? 
if the turn causes the pain or the problem, then you limit them from doing that. I wonder about people who take their dogs on the beach, which a lot of people in the Hamptons and other areas do. And I've heard from people, oh, when I get back from the beach walk, the dog's really lame. Now, would you agree as a vet and as someone who's paid a lot of attention to pain, well then, and I have been told by many vets that beach walking is really hard. Well, I know on horses that they can pull suspensories and do awful things, especially show horses. But even human chiropractors and physical therapists will say that the unevenness of sand for humans with lower back and so forth problems is something to be avoided. Do you think that one should avoid those situations in which your dog comes home lame rather than trying to aggressively address the pain, not put them in a position to create the pain? Yeah, I mean, it depends on how much pain the animal is in. If it's like, um, you know, if the animal really, really enjoys playing on the beach and the next day it's a little bit sore the way we would be sore if we went out and you know, went skiing or right. something and came right. home sore. Right. Um, it's if it's not super sore, then probably the enjoyment of the beach is worth it. But right. if the animal is um, basically unwilling to move the next day or, you know, showing signs of pretty severe pain, then it's probably better not to go to the beach at all. Right. And that kind of reminded me of something else too that uh, is a point I probably should make. You need to know the animal mm-hmm. because I've had other horses that um, if they had a really minor lameness like my current hair <clears throat> and I asked them to do something, they would do it. Yes. I mean, they were yes. super obedient and they would do anything you wanted them to do. And yes. so the fact that they would do something didn't necessarily mean that they weren't in pain. Great point. This mare, you know, if if she doesn't feel like doing something, she will let you know. Mm-hmm. So I can use that with her as um, a criterion for whether we should do something. That's a great point. It really does boil down to that individual animal because dogs, of course, are kind of DNA programmed to be obedient. So the dog that will go on the the 40-minute jog with you, which is something that I often moan about on this show, do not take your dogs jogging. It's not appropriate for the canine, especially not in hot weather. Leave them home. Come up with some other way to amuse them because that's not amusing. But those dogs, until they drop, will trot alongside the person with their tongue bright red and hanging all the way out of their mouth. But there may be some dogs. I had a cocker once who I used to try and take him on walks. It wasn't even exceedingly hot. He just didn't really wasn't really into it and he would just sit down at the beginning of the 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 trail hike and say um i'll just wait for you here because i know you're just going to come right back to this point anyway now was he hurting i don't know was he just a nut job probably but that animal does let you know what they're able and willing to do now someone else might have just put the leash on them and dragged them or forced them the whole way but i kind of go along as you said with what is that animal's comfort level and i guess that's really what we have to be aware of with pain is first of all to notice it because if if you aren't paying really close attention the animal's not going to give you that information even when we talk about limping i remember back when i lived in southern california and there were coyotes everywhere which are still around and i had both a 
a golden retriever puppy that the coyote would come in the daytime in broad daylight practically to the back door and knock on the door and say, is that little golden retriever snack available for me? I mean, you know, bold as can be. But I was told that older animals that showed signs of hind end weakness or lameness were very at risk for coyote packs to go after because that physical symptom was something that coyotes could read as being weakened. So is that an example of how, by nature, not only do they not moan or whimper, but they don't even, that they even maybe try to mask the physical uh, debil debilitation that they have? With pets that are from prey species, um, like horses or birds, um, it's, people do say that they don't show pain because they, they're genetically programmed to hide the pain because if you show weakness, then the predator will go after you. Um, and dogs are a predator species. Oh, so I see. Whether they would show that or not, um, I don't know. But I think the big thing with dogs is something you mentioned a little bit ago, that they're they're companion animals. I mean, they have been companions for people for thousands of years, and so they're programmed to be with you and enjoy being with you and to be social. So if, if your dog is in pain, um, you know, it may lie around the house feeling lousy all day while you're gone, but when you come home, it's going to come bouncing to the door to meet you. Yes. Because it's so happy you're back. And, you know, then you're like, well, how are you supposed to know the dog's in pain? Right. It only shows it when you're not around. That's right. And what about when you take it to the vet? How many of us have taken a dog to the vet that seems to have some severe physical problem and the adrenaline of being at the vet, the anxiety, adrenaline, cortisol, the fight or flight is there when they're at the vet and it and it seems to mask or cover up whatever that pretty dramatic exposition of that pain was when they were in a more relaxed setting, right? I mean, I've seen this happen. It's like, oh, so embarrassing. You've made this sort of emergency appointment. Oh my God, the dog can't get up or she doesn't want to use her right leg at all. And she's, you know, getting around in the office, panting anxiously, like, when can I go home again? So I guess the circumstance has something to do with what the animal will display also. Right. And, you know, if, if you're paying attention to the signs you, the animal is showing, then at least you can, when you get to the vet, you can say, well, you know, he's not right. eating as much. He, um, he's pooping in the house when he didn't use right. to do that. Right, right. You know, to, He's lying around all the time and doesn't want to move. You know, he'll move if if I ask him to, but he doesn't do it voluntarily. And, you know, those sorts of sound, of symptoms, if you're describing them to the vet, even if the dog isn't showing them, you know, the vet will recognize that the animal's in pain and we need to find out what's going on. Yeah, first diagnose and then decide how you're going to treat it. Well, Dr. Koch, really appreciate your time thinking about this. I think it's important for everyone to realize that pain is not something that the dog um, knows about that pain scale, and where and they can't tell you on a scale of 1 to 10. So it's up to us to, to kind of figure that out, and each animal will be their own, have their own set of signs and symptoms, and, and it's up to us to read them. Thank you so much for your insight on this and, and for the, the work you do on behalf of all animals everywhere. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks so much.
Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. We'll be right back after this quick word. Support for Dog Talk comes from Precious Cat Litter, which is privately owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who is dedicated to creating litters to appeal to pussy cats and protect their health. All the Precious Cat Litters are low dust for the health of all members of the household. Touch of the Outdoors is their newest litter made from field grass that provides environmental enrichment for indoor cats and entices them into the litter box with the natural scent of the great outdoors. Support for this show also comes from Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness in all their oils. I am back with Dr. Marty Goldstein, one of the most famous holistic vets that ever breathed air because he practically invented the phrase. Dr. Marty, it is wonderful to be reunited with you on the airwaves here on Dog Talk. Uh, what about the holistic vets that don't breathe air? That is a problem for them. <laughs> Definitely a problem. Those ones, yep, they're pushing up the daisies. Yeah, Dr. Marty Dr. Marty had his own show uh, just one or two nights before mine when there, was, when there was a Martha Stewart channel of Sirius XM, and we used to have an awful lot of fun trying to get on each other's nerves and on each other's shows. So it's very fun to be back on the radio with you, Marty, but on a, on a truly serious note, you really are... Is it called a standard bearer, a flag waver? I mean, you said holistic when people thought you were just a nutty guy eating dried apricots and almonds and promoting ideas that were so anti-medical that the medical community thought you were just like a snake oil salesman. And here now you're 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 at the top of the of the mountain, having been talking about holistic medicine from day one. How what what do you see in the arc of your life as a veterinarian and in your career? You know, I do have that viewpoint and a fortunately a very good memory. It was just about photographic when I was in vet school. So I remember a lot of stuff. And 40 years, it's been quite a long haul. I didn't, I never did like the word holistic because I didn't mind it. It was very descriptive of the work, but it was tied to us being radical, weird yes. fadism. Yeah, almost so, like you were hippies in the day. Yeah, hippies and, and you know, holistic vets, yeah. exactly. It, it was one and the same. And you were probably something awful like a vegetarian. You know, it's right. like oh, those easy. were the days when that was all just freaky, weird people that didn't wash. You got it. You know, we were holistic. That's so, right. So I, I never liked the word. It is a, it, it's an excellent word because it does describe the viewpoint of how we treat or care for or approach healthcare with our patients. We look at them as a whole being, not just a, an individual or a patient that has a symptom that we have to hit that symptom with a drug. Right, or a chemical uh, or surgery or something, um, let's say, harsh. I, and yet and the tide has turned so much that the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Association, of which my, one of my co-hosts on the Holistic Vets um, is Barbara Royal, who is, the, who is the head of that organization. They have thousands of members now who don't even identify themselves, as you do, as a holistic vet, like or not like the, the word. 
They may be just traditional vets who who want to learn more about what you've spent your life dedicated to, and they want to absorb more of a holistic leaning, seeing the whole animal in their in their practice. And that's a, a really interesting sea change. They're not saying, I'm going to wear that hat. They're just saying, I'm welcoming that hat next to me at the table. Mainly, they're doing that mainly because it has gotten acceptance. Yes. When you look When you look at the nutraceuticals, that have now gotten medically accepted, the milk thistle, the denicil, glucosamine chondroitin, even though there is controversy about that, and especially acupuncture. Acupuncture is the gateway in. It's the first thing I did. It's the first thing that most do because it's gotten accepted. And the reason, the the number one reason it's gotten acceptance is that it's been working for 3,000 years. Right. And also you can see immediate results. If you use milk thistle or other products for, let's say, elevated liver enzymes, it may take and it probably should take and will take weeks and months to see a change in the blood value. But you put acupuncture needles correctly, well used in an animal who is lame or has various problems, that animal gets up and does a tap dance. I mean, it's pretty great, the the feedback you get, right? It's true. And how I got into all of this is I was searching for my own health because I had degenerative conditions back in when I was in my 20s associated with being in vet school. And then through that, I actually got turned on to watching an associate vet do acupuncture. And that was at the time that Nixon went over to China and was making it a, oh, a well-known interesting. thing. And I, I, it, was, it was a desire for me to do that. And when I went to study with a Chinese master in veterinary acupuncture, what I did, it was very simple for me. I observed this man do things with animals that, as you said, led to almost miraculous yes. response. And I was highly trained in conventional medicine. At one time, I was number two in my class at Cornell. So I knew medicine. I yes. stayed around Cornell for another year after I graduated. Oh, no kidding. To be, a, to be associated. I was very interested in cardiology. So when I started to do acupuncture, I had a very highly trained conventional medical mind. Yes. And when I was seeing animals get better in front of my eyes, I had to accept that as truth. And unfortunately, as I came down in my joy, I came back home and glee to share it, I got condemned as a heretic. Isn't that interesting? And those were the attitudes in the day. And yet, here you are. We've had one of your associates who, ironically, I did not know worked at your clinic, which is very nearby for anybody in the Hamptons, the Berkshires, and Manhattan. Tell exactly where your clinic is so that people have a, have a geographic sense of it, Dr. Marty. We are in Westchester County, like southern mid-Westchester County, uh, on the Connecticut border. It's about an hour, hour and ten minutes north of New York City. It's in South Salem, and it's right on the New Canaan and Richfield, Connecticut border. It's in a beautiful area. Matter of fact, we are looking for an associate, another associate right now in our practice, another veterinarian who will be in one of the founding practices of integrative, that's what we call it now, medicine. So any of you listening out there, if you know any veterinarians that have an inkling towards being integrative, 
have them contact the Smith Ridge Veterinary Center. Smith Ridge Veterinary Center, because Dr. Mike, one of your associates who I met on the internet, who studied a lot of not just Chinese acupuncture, but Chinese nutrition healing, and he was on the show, and I was like, oh my goodness, you work with Dr. Marty, and it took longer for me to book that interview with him, and it's taken me forever with you, because you guys have your hands that full of people eager for the kind of care you can offer, so... Correct. It's actually a great opportunity for somebody coming out of vet school or who recently got accredited with acupuncture or, you know, wants to learn more about it to be in the neighborhood and have a huge uh, resource of great patients because you have patients coming from the entire kind of tri-state area, highly uh-uh. motivated for holistic uh-uh. <laughs> and even around the world. You have people around coming to the you. world. Yeah. It, it was very big across the country. My fr- I went into work today, and the first clients that were in the waiting room to see one of my other associates came up to me and said, would you please sign my book? We drove in all the way from Nova Scotia. Wow. So I mean, it tells you not only that you've, that you've held this position quietly, firmly, and sometimes with frustration for a long time, but it still shows the enormous open field, if you will, for more vets to espouse the principles that you and Dr. Barbara Royal and Patrick Mahaney, my my co-hosts on Holistic Vets on Radio Pet Lady Network, have, because if there were somebody closer to Nova Scotia or Saudi Arabia, I know you've had people fly in on their jets with their pets, or, I don't know, Minnesota, then they would go nearby. And, yes. and so it's not to say don't come to Dr. Marty, it's to say, People want it. There's an appetite for what you have to offer. And it must be quite a validation to say, well, thank God I've hung in this long and I can finally see the sunshine on the thing I know is right. It does feel good. And not so much egotistically. No. It feels good in that the animals are going to benefit from the the shift in consciousness. Yes. Finally. Finally. Yep. And sometimes it's the ones where all traditional conventional medicine has failed to come to you. And of course, those are very sort of light bulb moments and exciting when you can, you know, in an animal who's been sort of given up on, whether it's arthritis or other medical problems. But isn't it great if you can start with the younger animals or the newly adopted ones and start with this way of treating and handling them and feeding them and supplementing them before they have a problem? I mean, that's that's the real wish list, isn't just that those who've given up all hope, oh, you've given up all hope, come here. It's don't get to that place where, you know, you've tried every chemical, you've tried every kind of surgical, what have you, and you're kind of up a tree. And holistic has so many, I know, integrative, we can't say holistic with you. No, you can. But, you know, it's just that the supplementation alone is something that you, you create a lot of supplements, right? Well, we have over the years, when I started to do all of this, there literally was one vitamin that was being produced by a drug company in the 1970s. Then for the next 10, 15, even 20 years, what I was doing is as my own health was getting better and it made sense to try this on the animals, I was using human-based supplements and trying to adjust the dosage for the weight. And through that, I became influential in putting out that supplements for animals needed to be created. Right. Now now the good thing is that there are so many 
animal-specific supplements that it's it's just taken off on its own. I think every new every day at least one to five new supplements hits the market. It's true. Or another company. There's a, there's a company called RX Vitamins for Pets, which is a, a wonderful sponsor one. of one of my shows on on Radio Pet Lady Network. But these are all privately owned. One or two people who, just like you, they've been doing this way of thinking, this way of treating illness and wellness forever. And I just think it's so great that your day has come while you're all still, you know, above ground and breathing air, as we said at the beginning, <laughs> exactly. and, and can reap the benefits. And it's not about ego and money. It's really about validating what you believed in all along. And I think that's really central. Dr. Sue Ettinger, who is the pet cancer vet um, on Monday nights on Radio Pet Lady, she's part of the Animal Specialty Center, which has been a sponsor of the show and has a great a great group of specialist internists in, in Yonkers. But I know that she sends her cancer patients to you at Smithridge, the ones who say, okay, we've done radiation or surgery or chemo, all or none. And now I want to do something that's positive, beneficial, holistic. And they come to you, right? Correct. Not only did they come to me, but the person who set up that facility, Rick Joseph, was the head of neurology at the Animal Medical Center, probably the largest private veterinary hospital in the United States. He Nonprofit was, teaching hospital, I might add. Correct, correct. And he was the head of neurology for 18 years. Then he set up the Animal Specialty Center, but before he opened the doors, he approached me no to kidding. set up a practice of integrative medicine or alternative medicine in the facility and on, as much as I wanted to, and I was honored by the invitation, the the response was I could barely handle the work at my clinic That's at right. Smith Ridge. Why would I want to travel forty five minutes to Yonkers to handle more work? Right when so you already were your I mean, now here you are looking for another pair of hands, uh, you know, uh, on to help, a, us out. To help out and give more care even. But it's interesting that a specialty center that's all about higher educational degrees of high science medicine wanted, had the desire, had the drive to bring in that lower science, if you will, the old-fashioned science, the one based on plants and, and uh, homeopathy and Chinese medicine and herbs, th things that have been around, as you said, for thousands of years with proven benefits. They should be complementary or, as you say, integrative Two, using the greatest MRI and the greatest cold laser and all these other pieces of equipment. It's it's not really not black or white. It's 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 both. It's both. It's all right. It is both. And Rick, as he had his aha moments leaving the Animal Medical Center, became certified in acupuncture and has been you know. Oh, became... I'll be darned! I didn't even know that, and I've oh, interviewed Rick him on has the been show. Certified for years, and he became a vegan maybe. 20 years ago. Isn't that something? So as a neurologist, what a cool thing to be to do acupuncture because you know the nervous system where every little nerve conjoins with every other nerve in the whole body. So you know you as a neurologist have an even better x-ray vision of where to put an acupuncture needle where a point is, right? Absolutely. Uh, from what I learned when I started to do acupuncture, 50% of all acupuncture points are associated with nerves. The other 50% are not. So it's not just through the oh, nervous. Oh, I see. It's through the energy fields of the body. And what what is astounding is that when I was studying acupuncture intensely, they were just 
learning how to inject a substance that could be into an acupuncture point and through special photography be able to visualize it go along the meridian. I love if, that. If you look back 3,000 years ago when we were not technological as a race, every 365 points were known every internal connection, every meridian, at what time of the day to treat it. Really? What kind of needle to put in. And it was sacrilegious in those days to dissect the human body. So who taught them that if modern technology is just starting to be able to determine the meridians that were laid down 3,000 years ago? So we're dealing with a higher level of knowledge. That's right. And interestingly enough, I, I once received a book that went from Mrs. Anwar Sadat to me in a cycle of people called The Hall of Records. Okay. And it was about looking for the entombment of the knowledge that was available at the time the Great Pyramids were built. Because we right now cannot build the Great Pyramid. Is that a fact? We don't we, have the technology that they had – the Nippon Corporation, maybe 15, 20 years ago, went into, into Egypt to build a miniature version of the pyramid and gave up. It's 23 no kidding. along the base with less than one half of an inch drop, which is impossible by the modern construction companies. And there are areas in the king's chamber where there are blocks that weigh 70 ton that are 75 feet in the air on post where only four people can fit in that area. How did they get there? <laughs> oh, you know, this is, I, I'm speechless, and everyone knows that's a very rare condition for me. But that is... <laughs> that's for sure. You know, you know that. That's pretty cool. I mean, I've been to the pyramids, and I've been to the, to the, the tombs. And, of course, as a, as a teenager when I went there, and, and even today, I don't think that the science would be the thing that would strike me. It's just not my nature. But when you bring that up... That's that is really breathtaking, as is the fact that they could figure out 365 acupuncture points without even if you had the privilege or the attitude to cut up cadavers and, you know, follow every nerve from point A to B. It wouldn't necessarily give you the pathways or the other 50 percent, which, as you said, are about chi or energy. Correct. And none of it's woo woo. It's not like you know, blowing smoke, it's the real deal. Th these are provable, and as you said, it's been proven that what happens can be documented. Correct. So when I, when I lecture at some of the universities like Cornell or, or Angel Memorial or LSU, yes. I actually, in the introduction, go through that. And because there is a lot of ego associated with medicine. Yes. And just to put everything in proper perspective... I show a copy of this book on the Hall of Records, and I go through the pyramids, and I go through acupuncture, and I just, to put them in their place, so to speak, so they will become attuned to what I say, is like, as technologically sound as we've become, with, especially with the cell phones and the, uh, the smartphones and this and that, there was a level of intelligence associated with this planet 3,000 years ago that even now surpasses us. 
and certainly surpasses we regular individuals who are best can barely figure out how to use an iPad, much less invent one. <laughs> Correct. Right? Dr. Correct. Marty, we've run out of time. It's so great to have you here, and it's so wonderful that, that your moment has come, and you're in the, in the sun, and it would be very exciting if through listening to Dog Talk, you've got a wonderful new associate because it really is a great opportunity for somebody to have great patience and a wonderful set of colleagues, all of whom have such passionate belief and deep knowledge in all these great modalities. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day and keep those acupuncture needles poking. Always a pleasure. Take care, Marty. We'll see you you again. Take care. Thank you all for listening. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches. We will talk again next week and continue considering all these issues. Bye for now.